Welcome back to Superfancast. My name is Chris. I'm joined by Matt, and this is season three, interlude two. Matt, did you hear the Venger boys are back? No, I did not. That's so exciting. I was not expecting that. <laughs> really? When was the last time you heard the name Venger boys? Oh, uh, I mean, a few weeks ago. Like I'd happily listen to them whenever. A few they weeks are. ago. Yeah. Do you li- like, do you sometimes listen to the Venger boys? No, but if it was a DJ. <laughs> If there's a DJ that you can speak to, I might say, hey, put on some Mega Boys, please. Oh, wow. Well, that yeah. is a surprise. So they're back. Or what are they, like, 50 years old now, 60 years old? Uh, I reckon they've got to be 50s, because they're, they're back to celebrate their 25th anniversary, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's, like, 25 years since they formed. It must be since they formed, right? 25 years. What would uh, that be? That'd be 98. I reckon yeah. they were big around then, weren't they? Late 90s, so... Yeah, maybe it's from right. like their debut or something. Twenty-five years since their debut, so they've they've reformed for that. And how do I know this? Well, not because I was looking at Venger Boys, but because I was shared an article from Mail Online about Robin Paws of Venger Boys has apparently claimed that um, they were sexually assaulted by a dolphin whilst filming a music video. Oh, uh, okay. So there um, you go. See, I don't want to. I don't want to laugh at that because sexual assault is obviously <laughs> a, a terrible thing, but it's. it's, it's that's also very intriguing. And yeah, it's a shocking it. allegation because we've, we've only kind of heard one person's side of the story. They haven't tracked down the dolphin, so we don't know what the dolphin has to say about it. But it certainly feels like there's a lot of fingers being pointed at the dolphin. Yeah. Robin's Robin's the one doing the finger pointing. <laughs> oh dear, I'm just I'm just imagining like a like a court case with the dolphin in the in the <laughs> <laughs> in the booth, you know, <laughs> just clicking. <laughs> Just say for yourself. He said that um, he said that it, they were filming a music video in 2013 for Hot Hot Hot, which I don't know. That I don't know that one. Do you know that one? I don't know. It could be a, a cover of the uh, Feeling Hot Hot Hot. Maybe. Yeah, it could maybe be. Not. There's a kind of thing they'd cover. The only songs I know by them are definitely not from 2013. They're from way back in the 90s. Is uh, Boom 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 Boom. Yeah, classic. And. Uh, I'm going to Ibiza, or we're going to Ibiza. Yeah, yeah. I think those are the only two I know. Oh, did they? The, did Finger Boys do Barbie Girl? No, that was Aqua. That was oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uncultured swine. The Venger Bus is coming, and yeah. is it that one? Yeah, I know the Venger Bus. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's had a ride on the Venger Bus. Now I wonder. Most of our listeners are in the US. Do you think they? Uh, they made it to the US? These guys. I can imagine so. I mean. I've seen a lot of internet memes <laughs> okay. that were clearly made in the in the US, and they they use the Venger bus. Okay, I think they they've used that in in adverts in the states. I'm sure. Okay, well, for anyone that hasn't heard of Venger Boys, they are a are they Dutch? They must be Dutch. They They're a Dutch, Dutch uh, Euro pop band uh, from the or well, from the '90s. I don't know if they released anything since then. Uh, maybe they did. Oh, they released Hot 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 in 2013, we established. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it is, it is the... Yeah, it is a cover of, of the... Okay. Of the early song, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so they've been around all that time, I guess. They did a, they did a Christmas album in 2014. <laughs> of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> with the single, Where Did My Christmas Tree Go? <laughs> Look, I could, I could talk Venger Boys all day long. But we've got other things. <laughs> we've got other things no, we, we don't. Need to talk about. No, we don't. Um, 
if you ever heard of the phrase Europop or the term Europop, then they are they they're a great example of Europop, aren't they? They are quintessential. Yeah, they are quintessential Europop. Just taking the mic, having a good time, uh, lots of bright colours, lots of yeah. smiling faces, and uh, synchronised dance moves. Yeah, and, and crazy outfits. Crazy outfits, uh, plastic hair. Plastic hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they loved they loved plastic hair that era, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so there you go. That's a little a little bit of Chris's music news. Christmas music. But hopefully that wasn't on your. Hopefully that wasn't on your list. No. I don't. I, I don't do. I don't do Matt's music news anymore. No, because the thing is, like, the music world is changing so much. I mean, the only music news really that's vaguely interesting is Kanye West. His school that we've we've spoken about. They well, I guess he has got in a bit of trouble because of the practices that are going on there. The big one that's that's been shared is is that the children eat sushi f- for lunch every day. <laughs> I'm sure there's other examples, but that's that's one of the big things. They just have, they can only eat sushi. I'm sure there's other examples, but it does seem suspicious that that's the one that's making making the headlines. If there was anything worse, surely it would have made the headlines. You would have thought so, yeah. And then they don't have any classes on on the second floor or the first floor if you're in the UK, because he doesn't like going upstairs, so they have no classes on the upper floor. <laughs> so it's really crowded on the bottom floor. How has he got? How does he not? He doesn't like going upstairs. Apparently, he's got a phobia of stairs or heights. I don't know. It's like bizarre. It's bizarre. We we yeah. knew it was going to be bizarre because we we covered it before they'd opened the school, didn't we? Or right when they'd opened it, I think. We did talk, we, we did dissect the website mm. and the uh, the curriculum. And we didn't we didn't think it was going to go well, did we? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem real. Yeah, sad. Sadly, it is. Oh boy. Oh boy, indeed. Hey, have you seen the Lewis Capaldi documentary on Netflix? No, but I've heard lots of good things. Lots yeah. of people really like him and are very complimentary about it. I didn't know much about Lewis Capaldi. Like, I've seen him, uh, I think I saw him on the Graham Norton show, and I think it's probably the only time I've ever seen him interviewed. And I know his voice, but actually, yeah, he's got a very recognisable voice. So if I'd have heard a song by him, I would have known that was Lewis Capaldi, but I didn't know any of his songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I watched a documentary a couple of weeks ago now, and it's called How I'm Feeling Now. It's so good. It's really, really good. Yeah. It's It spans quite a long period of time, um, or it certainly looks like it does anyway. Like it, it, Because it's, it, it flashes back, you know, it looks back at his childhood as well. And um, But it's mostly filmed after the release of his, of his debut and during this period period that he's been in for the last few years trying to trying to write a second album and also dealing with his uh with his uh mental health yeah he's got Tourette's syndrome as well he's got Tourette's yeah and so that that's diagnosed quite late in the documentary and and I didn't know he had Tourette's actually going into the documentary I didn't know anything about him I just saw oh this this will be an interesting documentary because it's Lewis Capaldi so I, I chucked it on but I didn't know he had Tourette's so actually at the end when he gets diagnosed. That was the first I'd heard of it as well. <laughs> Which I guess if you know he's got Tourette's when you're watching it, the whole time you're thinking, "Oh yeah, he's doing that because he's got Tourette's." Like, mm. um, but yeah, it's so so good. It's so good. For, for so many reasons. It's so good because a, it's him and he's just such an engaging character, and um, he talks really well. He's really funny and really endearing, yeah. and you you can't help but love him. And it's just it's just a yeah for those yeah. reasons. Um, yeah. 
but then it's also really good because the whole process of him trying to come up with a second album and writing for that and trying to record that is just really eye-opening yeah if, if you're into the music industry like most people that are listening to this are into music <laughs> but um yeah for me i found that really interesting like there's one session one section where he goes into uh, he goes into a studio with a couple of writers to show them some stuff he's got to try and get some get some tracks together and uh he's got a a drive with 50 50 songs he's recorded on it 50 mm. songs yeah. and they're like um should we go through these then because there's there's a lot of stuff here lewis there's 50 50 complete songs you've sent us and uh at the end of it basically they choose none of them <laughs> they go yeah none of them are suitable for your for your second album it's mm. just like it's soul destroying really yeah that's rough he says during the documentary he says basically your your first album you've got your whole life to write it like every from the minute you first pick up a guitar as as a kid to the the, the minute he finished recording his first album he'd he'd wrote that his whole life his second album he's given 10 months you know to to write it or whatever it's a proper job then isn't it yeah it's, it's very very different and uh yeah it's really brutal you know because some of the tracks they're playing and I think that they're great, you know. I think he's done a fantastic job, and then mm. no one else around him is saying that. Everyone else around him, no, oh, you know, it's not. It's not like that first single you released. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why record deals and record labels they are the, the devil, basically. Mm. You know, like, like this is why Prince cut ties. Well, he tried to cut ties as much as he could. Yeah, and did a lot of stuff his own under his own name yeah well it wasn't his name was it it was uh it was a symbol well yeah that's, um, a, that's another story <laughs> but you know what i mean uh yeah. he did it his, he did it under his own terms and he just released so much music basically just ignoring what the label wanted him to do yeah it's like screw you guys you know i've i'm making all this music and you can't keep up with me but this this isn't about prince um yeah i i like lewis capaldi and i feel like he's someone that i would normally really dislike but I, I can't dislike him. He's just very lovable and just just very normal. He's just, just a, a really cool guy. Mm. And and the way he acts and the way he looks and his, his general demeanour, it doesn't seem to match what you imagine, you know, with his singing voice. Absolutely not, yeah. yeah his singing voice is like, bizarre. It's so different to what you expect to come out of his mouth. Yeah, it's like he gets possessed by some kind of perfect sort of pop star yeah. singer songwriter you know when he's singing he's like wow you know this is so different he's so fun you know he doesn't he doesn't seem to get offended by people you know people people do say i mean i haven't watched the, the, the documentary but he, he he knows how to, to to laugh at things yeah he does yeah but it's yeah I, i'd recommend watching it i, I won't say too much but i, I definitely yeah. recommend watching it um because yeah he does come across that way but it's also it's very, it's very different for us because we're not living in that living that life yeah. where yeah. Um, you're under a microscope and uh, but yeah I, I, strong yeah. recommendation that 10 out of 10 I was I was thinking about him recently because I was walking around the supermarket and I saw yeah, he's got his own pizza has he really yes yeah, it uh, it's in Iceland the supermarket Iceland uh, Lewis Capaldi's <laughs> pizza it's called the big sexy cheesy one or the big sexy oh beauty one <laughs> Okay, I thought I've got nothing to say. <laughs> okay, it doesn't look very interesting. It just looks like a normal pizza <laughs> with his face on the front. What an odd, what an odd angle. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say about it either. <laughs> I'm, but I'm glad you said it, Matt. 
you're going to um, renounce your vegan ways and now take up eating pizza. I can still eat pizza. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, but they normally chuck vegan cheese all over it, and I don't like vegan cheese very much, so I tend to get no cheese, and so it's just tomato sauce with loads of vegetables on top. Yeah, that's not a pizza, though, is it, dude? Well, no. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Yeah, I've got a couple of, couple of recommendations for you, if, if I may. You may. Oh, one thing about Louis Capaldi. So his, his second album, it is coming out, I think, pretty officially, because, you know, it's been... I don't know if it's been delayed, but it's just he he didn't he didn't. Oh, I might be wrong. Maybe it was delayed. Maybe he did give a timeline and it has been delayed, or maybe he never gave a timeline. But it's yeah, coming it's... out next month. So yeah, that's coming out next month in May, and he's just had a single out last week called "Wish You the Best," which I haven't heard, so I can't comment on it. Uh, I've heard it. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. Good. yeah, good on you, Lewis. I would like to recommend to you. Well, I don't know if I'm recommending it. I just want to talk to you about it. I don't know if it's your cup of tea, but I th- you, you, you might like this. Have you heard of Ulva? I've heard of Ulva, yeah. I don't know what it is, though. Okay, so Ulva are a Norwegian band. And so I've been listening to one of their more recent albums, um, which I'll, I'll mention the name of in a minute. But they started in the 90s, early 90s-ish. Uh, 95, sorry. Their, their debut came out in 95. Uh, their debut album was called Bergtat, because it's Norwegian, Berg, right? Bergtat, what does Berg-tat. that mean? Uh, it means uh, spellbound Ooh, in nice. Norwegian. And it's black metal. It's very Norwegian black metal. That's what all the kids listen to when they're growing up, though, isn't it? Like like in school, they just listen to black metal. I don't think I listened to any black metal growing up. No, but you're not you're not Norwegian, though, are you? Oh, I see. That's good. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not Norwegian. Yeah, maybe you're right. So that so they're making black metal then. Now I've been listening to an album called "The Assassination of Julius Caesar" from 2017. Okay. And it is 80s synth pop, mm. and it's really really good. Like it's, it's same, super good. Definitely the same band. Hundred percent the same band, and so. I was reading a lot of comments and reviews about the assassination of Julius Caesar and not only is it loved by, so it, it seems like a very popular album by uh, Olver fans and a lot of Olver fans were saying this is their best release since Bergtat. So it, they're obviously fans that also love the black metal, which is really interesting because, I mean, the assassination of Julius Caesar is a fantastic album. I, I'd really recommend it. It's it's quite, I don't know if you know what I mean by if I say it's a little bit highbrow, like it's, I mean, lyrically, it's it covers like history and philosophy and religion and kind of things like that. But it's also kind of like um, I don't know, like if Depeche Mode went to private school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but it's it's really really good. It's um, is it quite progressive then? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think it's pretty progressive. It I don't, it definitely sounds a bit more intellectual intellectual synth pop i would call it okay it's 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 amazing it's really really good but it's it's interesting that it's loved by the same fans that also love the black metal stuff but anyway i've i've not listened to anything other than that record and their debut i listened to their debut album just to kind of hear the difference and it's it's they don't sound like the same band to me mm-hmm. okay yeah they sound like a different band to me um but anyway i've looked at their releases because they've got about 12 13 albums um uh, I'm guessing. I'm not counting. Um, but mm. if I go through their records, the first one, two, three, four are black metal. But then the fifth record, fifth studio album, Perdition City, is an avant-garde trip-hop 
ambient jazz album. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So they cool. obviously are a band that's just like, they're just trying loads of different stuff. It's kind of cool. I like this. So the question that comes to my head is when they're playing a gig, mm. do they take oh, yeah. songs from the different styles or do they just focus on what they're doing at the time? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd, I'd be interested to see a, a live performance from them. Um, I can't imagine you, you'd you be doing something like this this newer stuff that they've released and then go back to that really dark black metal from the beginning. Yeah, you'd have to have a completely different layout of the, the stage and the, the instruments. Yeah. You know, loads of synths. I think bands like this that release, like, The Assassination of Julius Caesar isn't a concept album from my perspective i don't know what the reviews say but i don't think it's a concept album but it's definitely thematic like it's if the whole album does have the same kind of theme but it's not following a following a concept from beginning to end you know and so i feel that it's it's kind of like if you went to see them live you'd you'd kind of want stuff within that same world if you know what i mean i think they would they would benefit from playing an album live Mm -hmm. okay yeah well so it would have to be played start to finish yeah that would be cool Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So yeah, I've been listening okay. to that quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, you know, at work when I'm working during the day, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a real good listen. Definitely recommend it. Yeah, sweet. I'll check that out. I've also been listening to a little bit of the Villages of Iwanina City. Have I recommended those to you before? You've not. Oh. oh. I wasn't sure if I'd mentioned them on on the podcast before. They're mm-hmm. a Greek kind of progressive folk. Uh, rock band it's kind of prog rock but it's very folky um and they've got an album called age of aquarius which i've been listening to for probably about six months here and there discovered it quite a while ago and uh it's it's really really good yeah it hits hard it's it's got some gorgeous guitar in it it's got some it's it's very um atmospheric and yeah i I definitely recommend it Hmm. i work with a greek guy and i said to him I'm listening listen to this band, uh, The Villagers of Iwanina City. And he was like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, everyone knows them. <laughs> so I guess in Greece, they've got a bit more of a following. Classic. But um, yeah. yeah, I definitely never heard of them until I heard this record. So Age of Aquarius. Bit, so they've got a bit of a Greek sort of uh, tinge to their music. Possibly. I mean, there's definitely some, there's definitely some, uh, some varied instrumentation in there. Like is it the fun the percussion instruments or yeah um, yeah they got some like... fun percussion in there like it's not just we're not we're not just talking like guitar bass and and drums they've they've yeah. got some other stuff in there so yeah maybe maybe there's some Greek influence I don't know enough about Greek music to be honest I've I've listened to a lot of no I haven't really that's a lie <laughs> I haven't, I haven't listened <laughs> you've probably to listened Greek. to more than me I haven't listened to any Greek well I mean. Um... No, I'm gone. <laughs> no, other than these guys, I don't think I could name another Greek artist. Come on, we've got to be able to. We've got to be able to name one. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask the big G. Famous Greek singers. Well, what immediately came to mind was George Michael. Was he Greek? He was half Greek Cypriot. That was the only thing that came to mind. Um, but I've looked just on Google. Just that's all I put. Greek bands. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. the worst search ever. And we've got Necromantia, Septic Flesh. Oh my time. okay so they like a certain thing then yeah there's a lot of scary sounding like mortal torment uh reigning pleasure that sounds like a a prince cover band actually (laughs) bio cancer acid baby jesus yeah i'm i'm so uncultured i don't know who any of these guys are i'm not gonna pronounce them moving on then (laughs) 
Sorry, <laughs> Greek music fans. <laughs> Moving on. But anyway, you've got villagers of Iwanina City, and I, I definitely recommend them. And yeah, give them a lesson. Yeah. What's so, been uh, yeah. What's been filling your ear holes, Matt? <laughs> filling my ear holes. I mean, I've been I've been playing with a new band recently, so my ear holes have been filled with backing tracks and lots of noise from from some gigs this weekend. So I have been listening to Ryo Kawasaki, who is a oh, yeah. legendary jazz fusion guitarist, uh, originally from Japan. Well, he's he's not alive anymore, but he he moved around a lot. And yeah, uh, this guy is wicked. I love him very much. And uh, he he's done so much. Like he's done, he's worked with Gil Evans. He's done stuff with George Benson. And I'm mainly listening to an album called Juice which is it's like a, a, a jazz fusion instrumental album. Very funky. Quite, it's quite Herbie Hancock-esque. And yeah, you put it on straight away, you're just like zapped into like funky, magical, electronic world, you know? The, the front cover is an orange and the, the peel's coming off and underneath there's lots of circuitry. And oh, it's just it's just so much fun. I, I love these sort of albums. George Duke and uh, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters, that kind of thing. Like it, it, it just it just takes you on a journey of absolute bonkers fun. It's really funky, really good stuff. Lovely horns and simps and and yeah, I'm gonna listen to this guy a lot more. And and I also found out that he helped invent well at least you know he invented his own guitar synthesizer which is really cool oh cool yeah so he was really into discovering new sounds he's a bit of a genius a bit of a clever lad oh good on you rio yeah yeah i get i, I get it listen you sent you sent me a link to juice did yeah. you send me a link to the whole was it the whole album whole that... album yeah yeah ah. um yeah super funky super funky super, from the get-go super um funky. i i have listened vaguely i mean I, I couldn't tell you much about this artist recently i was building a shed with my friends uh in the yes, garden and it was the most painful horrendous piece of anything like flat pack anything that i put together because the, the holes are all mismatched and all, all the pieces they just sounded like like we were having a fight in the garden <laughs> like the the, the the neighbors must have you know they wanted to call the police like what are we doing it was just awful. But we, we put on, well, my friend put on his, his, his random chill out music playlists. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, whatever, that's fine. Put on a bit of Power Glove, which was really cool. Uh, always goes down well. And then he put on uh, an artist called Windows 96. <laughs> uh, I love the name. As I, at first I was like, that's a bit straight. And then I realized, oh, yeah, there was never actually a Windows 96. You know, there's, it was a Windows uh, 95 and then it was 98. Yeah, ninety eight. Yeah, so I don't know. It's like I don't get the, the I don't get the reasoning for the name, but it's basically very chilled electronic music. And have you heard of vaporwave? Yeah, I've heard of vaporwave. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's 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 in the same it's in the same uh, sort of playing field as as retro wave and synth wave and, and yeah yeah, just any kind of wave. It's just waves and waves. Yeah, I mean they're wave. all different. They're all just different types of synth wave, aren't they? They're all. They're all just yeah. different ways of playing with uh, you know, different pockets of synth sounds and, and making... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there'd be tracks that were like seven, eight minutes long and there wasn't a distinctive melody. It was just sound just hitting you in the face. Mm -hmm. 
and it's very pretty and gradually it becomes something and then at the end it's like it's just screaming at you it's developed Interesting. And it was it was the strangest thing to to but i guess it did it did chill me out quite a bit i think i did benefit from that otherwise because... i would have just thrown the thrown the whole shed in the bin <laughs> because what i what i was expecting you to say was that uh, windows 96 was going to be uh an a band that were or an artist that was named where the name kind of says this is exactly what we're going to sound like but what you're saying is windows 96 doesn't actually sound like um, I, no. I was expecting you to say, "Well, they're making music that sounds like like the intro music to Windows or something." <laughs> yeah, I was expecting that. I also was expecting it to go like, "Yeah, exactly." Yeah, yeah, but there wasn't, from what I could hear, there wasn't any samples. There wasn't little clips of people talking. So I've read that Vaporwave is, you know, musically and visually, it's it's like, it it says a lot about consumer culture. And it tries to make points about how we are just like slaves to money and to the internet and celebrity and all that stuff. But I didn't really get any of that from listening to it. I just thought, this is very pretty. This is very intriguing. So Mm. I might give it a bit more. I'm going to give that a listen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've persuaded me. Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. mind i don't mind it sounds obscure enough that i might uh i might really enjoy that yeah yeah like vaporwave i mean i'm looking it up like vaporwave is is like an art style as well like like people make weird pictures it's like there's like a picture of a planes hugging i'm just looking at one i've just found on wikipedia like planes hugging and then there's temples around them like greek temples and they've got like internet explorer symbols all over them and then it says (laughs) i surrender at the top yeah some of those uh some of those more niche genres do transcend different art forms like glitchcore for example like there's an, there was an article yeah. on glitchcore on uh on superfan news last year and um uh, and yes yeah, so a glitchcore is a term that can be used for a style of music or for a style of art which when you look at the artwork and you listen to the music you can see that they are the same thing you know yeah they're, they're the same theme but um yeah it's interesting yeah, I'm sure it's a lot more interesting than, than I'm making it out to be. <laughs> but basically, it, it helped me get through the most stressful time. Possibly one of the most stressful times of my life. Putting, up the, took... putting up the shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but this this took like three days. And, and on the internet, people were saying, oh, it took me about three hours by myself. You know, oh, this they took... hate them. Whoever said that, I hate them. I'm like, no, you did not. You know, you, you must have about six arms. And I, I, I th- don't, 34 I... children helping him. <laughs> massive army of people yeah <laughs> so that is that it did so a few weeks ago when i oh it wasn't a few weeks ago a month or two ago when was it last month beginning of March. years ago <laughs> many many centuries ago when i saw uh, my vitriol up at the apollo down at the apollo rather i met some wardner who is some wardner shocking question the um Singer, frontman, guitarist, brains behind my vitriol. Yeah, and, of course uh, I do know. I do know that. I just, just in case people <laughs> people haven't listened before, you know, this this is your that's favorite. That's not band. that's not an excuse to not know who my vitriol are. This is Chris's favorite band by a mile. Yes. So you you are this episode super fan, aren't you? Yes. Although we have already done an episode on my vitriol, but uh, but when I saw oh. some uh, when I saw some, he agreed to an interview, and so. Last week, sometime, I spoke to spoke to Sam and got to ask him 
few questions, got to have a good chat, and uh, he, he spilled the beans really on, yeah, a lot to do with how they started, how my vitriol started, and yeah, the pains and the struggles that they went through, and what's coming for them now and in the future as well. And it was a fantastic interview. And uh, yeah, I just want to I want to give a little background on my vitriol because yeah, you, you're right. There might be a couple of brain dead people out there who don't know who my vitriol is. So um, <laughs> is that fair? Uh, I'm not even going to go there, dude. I mean, you know, this is this is your thing. You know, <laughs> I, I never heard of them until you you told me about them, and and you you passionately told me about the their album, which is you know Fine Lines, which is you said was the greatest album of all time. Fine Lines is. By a long shot, my favourite album of all time. I li- I've listened to that album and still listen to that album way more than I listen to anything else. You know, when I when I come on here and say what I've been listening to for the week, that's on top of Fine Lines. Like I, I've also been listening to Fine Lines this week. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. For me, it's it's that album that when I can't think what to listen to, I put it on, and and it's and it's not like I put it on and listen to a few tracks. I always listen to that album cover to cover. Like it's because it's um for me it's uh. It's like a soundtrack. It's, I mean, it's not a soundtrack to a movie or anything, but it's it feels that way from beginning to end. It feels like one piece, and and you mm. can't kind of pick pick songs out of it, take them out of that that setting that they're in. Um, so yes, I, I mean, I could talk for a long time about what I love about Fine Lines, but that's that was their debut album. So a little bit of background on my vitriol that gives some context to the interview that you're going to hear. I'm not going to go into a big thing about it. You can go back and listen to um, season two when uh, we did an episode on my vitriol. <laughs> so this, this, ep- yeah. So the episode, the episode on was my vitriol. Yeah, it was uh, quizzing me on. Uh... This was yeah, yeah. So so we used to do quizzes, but that that took up a lot of time for researching. But how how many did you get out of five? Oh, I didn't do good. No, I didn't do good. I think I got like two, two or three out of five. I think I think you might have got one. No, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh dear! Do you know what I didn't? I didn't do any of the, the research that I would normally do because I thought oh, I'll nail it because because <laughs> I love these yeah, guys. I'll nail it. You got cocky. You got cocky. I got cocky. Yeah, came back to bite me in the ass. So my vitriol formed in '99. They're an alternative rock band. They were originally formed by uh, Ravi Kesavaram and Son Wardner, and they released their debut album in 2001 called Fine Lines. Fine Lines did pretty well. It got to the 20s in the charts in the UK. Um, and then they went on three three years of touring and they toured really hard and they, they burnt themselves out and they went on a bit of hiatus. They did release a couple of EPs over the, the following years um, and they also re-released Fine Lines with a second CD uh, called Between the Lines, which is really enough music to be a, a, a second album, which we've, we'll talk about a little bit in this, um, in this interview. Uh, but it was not until... 2016 that they released their their follow-up again is talked about in the interview so it's worth mentioning uh so that you have some background it was released on a platform called pledge music which i don't think exists anymore but pledge music was basically kickstarter for for musicians and so it was it was crowdfunded by my vitriol fans there was i mean if you look online there seems to be a lot of anger about the the release um, by fans who uh, invested in the record and then it didn't come out for a long time, you know, years after they expected it to. But, you know, when you hear the interview, you'll, you'll hear that uh, you know, that's possibly blown up a little bit. But yeah, it's it's, it's worth knowing that because there is mention of Pledge Music um, in the interview. Uh, and then, you know, they've, they've, they've gigged since, um, since then on and off, most recently supporting 100 Reasons. And 
I think that's probably about it, really. If you want to know more about my vitriol, go back and listen to, to my vitriol episode. Does that give a, a rough summary? I think so, yeah. The the current lineup and the lineup that's been around for you know, a good few years now is um, Som and Ravi, obviously. Uh, Seth Taylor, who has been with the band pretty much since the beginning. And Tatia Starkey is currently their um, their bass player and has been their bass player for a while. Tatia is the granddaughter of Ringo Starr. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, so there you go. So here's um, here's my interview with Som Wardner. Enjoy. When I listen to Fine Lines, uh, I hear some really great songwriting and songs that I wouldn't expect to hear from a debut album by a band that didn't have a long history of uh, you know, other bands and prior releases. So I kind of want to explore that a little bit more. So way, way back, tell me what kind of music were you exposed to growing up and before you started delving into your own musical interests? Uh, even though I grew up in, in Sri Lanka, like, well, interestingly enough, I was always into the Beatles. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, Tasha's granddad happens to be in the Beatles, uh, our bass player who's come back from maternity leave. Um, but, uh, you know, there was obviously music of all kinds around. I mean, there's obviously uh, Sinhalese music. My mum actually uh, writes uh, melodies and stuff and songs. And that ability probably came from her, really. Um, some of this stuff might be hereditary, I'm thinking. She's also good at art, and that was my big thing before I was 10. I'd actually managed to have, you know, three art exhibitions in three different countries, you know. Um, but uh, I actually dropped art for music uh, later on in my teens because I just felt art had become so subjective. I didn't really understand what what was good and what wasn't good anymore, but I knew what a good song was. Or, I, you know, I loved songwriting. I loved pop songs, actually, uh, as a kid. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's just like how it works with art. You know, you, as a kid, you love cartoons and then and, and sort of realism to a great degree. But then as you get towards being a teenager, you get into surrealism and you get to Dali. And I did my project on Magritte or whatever. And, you know, that's kind of the natural progress of things. You get bored of just uh, everything being like, you know, in the box. And then you start to want to mess with it, rebellious and all that stuff. Um, so obviously I got into, you know, rock music and all that and that's when the songwriting really started uh, even though my mother tried to get me to do musical lessons and all that stuff I didn't really have the attention span for it my sister I believe has done all the grades of piano guitar and singing uh, you know like by the book <laughs> uh, but I've, I've not done those uh, that I was all self-taught really I, I just I found it um, more interesting just to, you know like a challenge for myself really and I didn't really see the the point of scales and all that it got it was very boring you know for me but if someone had like I guess that's where teaching styles are kind of interesting um, because if you if a kid loves music the best way of getting them to play a musical instrument is saying hey do you want to play this song you know the song you were singing earlier or whatever yeah let's play that together and they'll be like oh wow so and then you'll have to go well in order for you to be able to do this you've got to do learn the chords and stuff or whatever right and that would have set me off much earlier but you know uh i eventually got into all that after i got a guitar mm -hmm. you know nirvana and all that rage against the machine 
as it happens, you know, the members of Rage are like my really good friends now. We ended up signing to the same label in America, Epic Sony. So it's kind of been quite the journey from a kid in Sri Lanka watching a Beatles cartoon <laughs> to, to, to where we are today. Yeah. Uh, the ups and downs on the way here. But I don't regret a thing, really. Um, I'm just grateful that there are still people that, you know, like what I've created, put out into the world, hopefully forever. Even after I'm gone, hopefully that that'll linger on, and give people happiness even when I'm not around. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. There's actually this thing about digital. So, you know, now that everything's digital, um, that is potentially a, a blessing and potentially a curse. Of course, you could lose, you know, photographs, for example. But now you've got that sort of the future-proofing aspect of it. Like, does it become? you know, uh, obsoleted, uh, you know, some, for example, people who've got all their photos on a Nokia phone or a Windows and they've moved away from that, you know, are having trouble, uh, you know, accessing that. Um, you know, that's that whole technological storm that happened in the early part of the century, you know, obviously impacted us in many ways, actually. Yeah. I had to really fight with Chris Sheldon on that. Um, Fine Lines album to get him to use Pro Tools because that was going to make it easier for me to do certain things like, you know, but and and it was real strong. He called it slow tools and he was really not into it. And then when I saw Chris like years later, I was like, oh, are you finally on Pro Tools? Are you? He goes, oh, yeah, I think your record was the last one we ever did on tape. I'm like, oh, of course, of course. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we had to keep running things off the tape into tools and back. And, and admittedly, Chris was right. I mean, it was not a developed technology at that time but you know everybody else was using it like on cutting edge i talked to the coldplay guys and they used pro tools loads and you know but there was even people being luddites about that and not really wanting to you know i've never been that i've never been purist actually so sometimes a bit too willing to experiment i guess but sure you know i think uh you know there was even people sort of saying no don't don't use pro tools that's like too you know and I'm like, well, why not? It's it's a tool, and and it's probably going to make life a lot easier to do recalls and stuff, you know, get the mixes right and stuff. But it wasn't at to that level. There weren't the plugins that they are now, and so it still had to go through a desk for the compression that sounded great and all this stuff. So, unfortunately, that you know, our fine lines I think would have been a lot better album if, in terms of, if, obviously, as you say, if we had experience, right? Because we were just pushed in the deep end and we had to learn how to swim which is partly what blew it for me really because you know i was having to do a lot of catch-up work for for you know everybody basically <laughs> um and that completely burnt me out but I, I knew how lucky we were as i've said many times so that's why i was like you know so many bands want to get to this position where they've got that opportunity to just you know get their stuff out to the wider world and do this kind of full time and you've got to give it your all and i did give it my all plus you know plus more yeah. And I think that's why it really burnt me out. And it, it became such a negative. The association with making music became very negative. And doing, you know, secret sessions didn't help that actually at all. Because obviously, it was, at that time, it was just me and Rav doing the work of basically a whole entire team. And yet again, it was in the deep end learning how to swim. There's a guy who was meant to be mixing for us. He'd won Grammys or whatever. Um, but he, you know, he did a couple of tracks and then you know he disappeared onto other projects whatever um and we were he kept holding the baby and you know at the, at, you know i didn't want to push other people in front of the bus i've never actually done that um but when people let you down that stuff that's happening 
behind the scenes that you can't really reveal to other people. And you, you have a moral quandary at that point, you know. So I knew that, uh, I mean, we already knew, the re we didn't know what time, when the record was going to be completed. We asked for like the longest run up we could have. The whole reason of doing that was to make sure we got, you know, everybody else involved in the project was going to prioritize it. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the rest of the band, you know, they've got kids and stuff. I'm the younger, I was the youngest there, you know, um, other than Carolyn, I was always the youngest out of everybody on, on the tour. And, you know, putting a deadline down just forces people to prioritize, you know, doing, prioritize the band over all the other millions of, uh, you know, responsibilities they have. So I understand it. But I knew that, you know, it's a creative process. You don't really know, you know, when it's going to be done. And it has to be done to the, highest level you can because that's what you owe to to the fans and to yourselves mm. um but you know when somebody's meant to be mixing the project and then you know isn't anymore uh, that's a nightmare because it's already part of it's already done and etc so how do you go back to square one and then basically Ravi and i just uh, you know i just said right let's just learn how to mix you know so it's going to be another skill you're going to have to put in there but let's just learn how to mix Prior to that, Rav really didn't do Pro Tools at all. It was just me. I taught myself how to do that one too. As you know, I taught myself how to play all the instruments, as I said earlier. But so it was just the computer and the Pro Tools was just another one to, to teach myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, and, and the whole idea was to basically do that so that we have the skill set to produce music ourselves and, you know, for free, essentially, other than our time. So to get all the, you know, the bits and pieces we need to get us to home studio to that level where we can at least produce music for free and everything. And then the, the EP that came, you know, shortly after that uh, was an idea of to, to just basically try. We got a completely new Pro Tools system and everything. And the, that was the aim to just try doing some cover songs. So Ravi and I could always create material that we can release without any any rental of studio nothing you know all that stuff but then the pandemic came and derailed the whole thing and mm -hmm. that's a whole different conversation but yeah but i mean all that stress of doing secret sessions and essentially doing the work of so many people you know and, and again it was deep end learn how to swim we'd never released an official release or anything we didn't know what an ap2 agreement was you know for the licensings and all that kind of there's always something that came up that was really irritating you know um, and you know, th then you get some people complaining. But l funnily enough, you know, th these people have a disproportionate impact on society, and that's something I learned. Because not only did they have a disproportionate impact within the sort of narrative of that community of, of our, we weren't doing this as a public exercise. We were doing this for bands that have written to us over years and years. You know, um, we were doing it for them really. And there's the and, and guess how many um, you know people took a refund? Eight.
I mean, you obviously had to learn a lot really fast with, with regards to fine lines and then continued that process all the way up to, to secret sessions and beyond. But prior to fine lines, what was your experience um, in, in music? You were in bands, right? And, yes. and were you gigging? Well, yeah, shock syndrome. I was, you know, my so at school, there was a band that got quite popular. My, my band with my friends, Rob and Paul, um, you know, we were just you playing locally and stuff. We got really popular. Um, I guess because of the songs and stuff, and you know, ki kids from the school and the and and inevitably other schools and stuff would basically you know listen to our tapes and CDs and stuff. So yeah, we, that was my only other band other than MV really. And MV, uh, that band split up because I went to UCL. I didn't apply to Oxbridge or anything. I wanted to go to UCL because I liked the principles it was founded on, which is that you know anyone can have an education. You know, they allowed women in. They allowed um, you know, Catholics in, Jews in. It was a Jewish guy called Jeremy Bentham, I think, that started it because back in those days it was only, I think, Anglicans that got a, um education by, by Oxbridge or whatever. Yeah, so I didn't even apply to Oxbridge. I just applied to UCL, London's a good, you know, music city. Um, and that's how Ravi and I met. He was right next door to me in Goldsmith Hall. I was uh, F6, he was F7, I think. And uh, that's just the fate of how it worked. We were very different, you know, the music that we listened to. There was a Venn diagram of certain things that we liked. But Ravi tend to, you know, veer towards the technical because he's such a great, you know, drummer or whatever. It was, and, and I tend to veer towards more the sort of the feel and the, the emotion and all that stuff more than technicality. Which is kind of, in some ways, a, a good thing because, you know, we've got two different focuses, two different things that we bring to the band. But, you know, at the same time, there was a lot of, you know, having to really try and make it work because band chemistry is very important and that's something that i had in my um you know in the band prior in shock syndrome we you know the kid me and my friends at school were listening to the exact same bands pretty much so right. when i brought in a song you know it was so obvious what the beat was going to be to that you know it was just so obvious because we came from that exact same musical cultural you know backdrop um but it was different when I came to UCL. Suddenly people were from all around and they all had these different, uh, you know, uh, musical histories, if you like. And most of the musicians were very square and just playing oboe and clarinet and, uh, you know, grade eight piano or whatever. And <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't really, there weren't that many people into alternative rock, actually, to be honest, really weren't. It was very, very hard to find uh, musicians. But I happened to be next door to Rav and he was a great drummer and yeah, we. There was a few albums we had in common, at least, you know, we had a bit of, uh, I don't know, I think Alison Chain, Smashing Pumpkins, maybe, or whatever. <laughs> but he he never was into the kind of more Nirvana side. He was more, even more towards Pearl Jam or Soundgarden in particular, you know, that kind of right. thing. Yeah. I mean, I started writing songs as soon as I got a guitar because then suddenly I just, it could have been, you know, with these things, you, you, you know, it's silly to always just think it's one factor because there's probably more than one reason. Uh, you know, my age could have been part of it, uh, but I've always been creative. But I think it was the, sim the simplicity of the kind of music I was listening to, like Nirvana. I think the bar chord aspect of Nirvana really helped me identify how songs work. You know, so it was 
you know, immediately I started writing songs with the bar chords. It, you know, it started off with something very, you know, generic. I think my first song I wrote was called Someday, and it was like D, G, F. And it was very melodic and very catchy. And um, yeah, and that's where I started. And I had friends around me who were like, you know, blown away that I could do this because, you know, I was only like, whatever, 15, something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And there I was writing these songs that they were singing all day. <laughs> so I think they were quite impressed by that. And I, I was impressing myself. And that's part of the whole thing, isn't it? Where you go, wow, how the hell did I manage that? And, you know, within a very short amount of time, I was writing, you know, quite a lot. of. I think I wrote all of me all by myself when I was like, you know, like I think 17 or something. Wow. And I listened back and I go, oh, there's some nice little changes in there that like, you know, most people wouldn't do. And, and that's the little fairy dust that you sort of look for in, you know, the Beatles had that a, a plenty. Um, and so did Kurt, actually, for example, with um, lithium, that fifth chord, you know, I'm so happy because today and on that day, it sounds sad because he's gone to he's gone out of what you would normally go to on that fifth chord. And despite them all being majors, it sounds sad. That was what's genius about the Beatles and about Nirvana and, and at their best, uh, is that they had that ability to have this sort of magic dust that, by the way, is completely disappearing out of music now. It really is, you know, very, it's such a shame. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, the, the thing about the tools is, I mean, I started using alternative tunings, which is interesting because Chris from Coldplay, he, he used to come with, um, uh, Johnny, I love Johnny, and and Johnny and I had lots of uh, bands that we liked similar in common, like everything from Blonde Redhead, Sonic Youth, that kind of stuff. He was he was the one who had the closest record collection to mine, actually, Johnny, because they had that they had a similar issue with Coldplay. I think they were all from slightly different, uh, you know, uh, musical backgrounds, so to speak. But um, I was, <laughs> you know, they came to see me play a few acoustic shows, and I'll always be tuning my guitar. Like it's because I had these different tunings on every song. And I remember talking to Chris about it because what is that just making your life difficult? I said, yeah, but that's how I write the songs because I, I hate anything that sounds too ordinary. I, I've thrown out so many songs because like one of his favorite songs is a song called Melodramatic. And I don't think it's ever even been released, actually. Uh, that was Chris's favorite song. And, he, you know, I remember someone asking him, oh, what's your favorite song of songs? It was for a fanzine or web scene or whatever. And he's like, oh, it's Melodramatic. And that's never even seen the the light of day yet <laughs> which maybe we, we should at some point but the reason i threw it out is because i just thought it was too pedestrian you know and that's me that's typical me really um i'll be like no i have to mess with this somehow i just can't be so ordinary it, it would you know if i sounded if a song sounded too much like something out there i i it just drove me nuts so one way around that is uh is using alternative tunings and then you know it, it pushes you in a different direction and and you don't follow your um patterns of behavior you sort of follow your intuition and and your like melodic sense and things like that and it kind of it's like a reset a little bit so you don't just retread uh, certain paths and uh you know hence infantile written in an alternative tuning that i made up same with uh under the wheels and those two still i think have stood the test of time those two because they certainly haven't dated um in my view anyway and that's because they were, they were always sort of, there was a freshness there. And, you know, even Chris started doing that, by the way. So after we had that chat, Chris started, you know, I think some of his songs that I think are special and haven't dated, like Spies, you know, that was written in, in an alternative tuning. And, and there's something fresh about that, 
but yeah, I mean, th there's something to be said about like keeping yourself excited and not just being too pedestrian. So that's where the alternative thing, you know, that's why I liked Sonic Youth and all these bands that were just slightly edgier and weirder, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely nothing ordinary about your music, but but then at the same time, there are there are songs like Always Your Way, Grounded, Cemented Shoes, um, right. that I'm always, I'm constantly surprised we're not more mainstream um, because they're very marketable, <laughs> you know, have real mainstream yeah, appeal I, to I'm them. I'm not actually. Yeah, I, I'm not so, so, well, I don't think the production was quite right. I mean, yes, sure, it sounded a little bit more like the Foo Fighters uh, album, you know, Colour and the Shape, I guess, because it's Chris who did the mixing on that too. Yeah. But the thing is, that's different. That's Dave Grohl. The, 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 there's a huge platform from having been in Nirvana, <laughs> right? And, and also, this is something that people don't realise because um, people miss context, especially 20-odd years later. Queens of the Stone Age and at the drive-in hadn't had hits, at that top 40 hits, and they had a lot more exposure than we did. Mm -hmm. um, it was very new metal orientated. There were rock bands doing well at that point. But they tended to be either from that Buckley Radiohead style phase, which is obviously uh, Coldplay were in that scene to start with, at least. And so were Muse. Uh, and Muse did very well. And they were both just before us. And then you had, you know, the, obviously the new metal stuff that mainly came from America. And some of it came from Britain, like Lost Prophets or whatever, which was sort of fitting in that category. But if you weren't in either of those two categories, you didn't tend... And a good example of that would be At The Drive-In and Queens of the Stone Age, because they didn't really fit into those two. And they were the two big, you know, hopes of 2000. And that, you know, that was the the albums that everybody kept talking about, Rated R or whatever, you know, all that stuff, One, you know. Mm -hmm. So when we got top 40s, that was a huge surprise to us. I mean, it was, you know, it was incredible. We were like, how did that happen sort of thing, you know. But we, you know, it was uh, breaking through for other bands, like who came after us, whether it's Hellas for Heroes, 100 Reasons, those kind of bands. Even though obviously we, none of, we don't sound exactly like those bands, it really did help. And then much later on, bands like Biffy Clyro, of course, you know. But it, everything is about timing, you know, everything. And... Our timing couldn't have been worse, frankly. The one thing that rock bands had is that we had a very, we had very loyal fans. Yeah. But the bad aspect of that is that they were very intelligent, <laughs> tech-savvy demographic. So they could download your album on Kazar or LimeWire or whatever, you know, way before it came out. And Fine Lines was actually out on, on those platforms, you know, like I think it was called Kazar or whatever, for like, um, you know, three months prior to its release. So that's why it only got to like, it got to like 24 or whatever. And what you tended to find is that very shortly after the technological revolution sort of, you know, impacted bands like us the worst, um, different formats start to appear, which were used very well by bands like Biffy Clyro, who had huge budgets behind them, thanks to Christian Tansfield or whatever on 14th floor. But, but you, before that, in, in our window, you had people who were appealing to older demographics, uh, people who are still buying CDs, really do extremely well. That was the key. So, you know, Muse doing Feeling Good and ending up on Virgin Radio, which completely took them out of that smaller, you know, alternative rock demographic and put them onto that, 
you know, the mainstream platform, which they were quite capable of doing great at, you know, and bringing some, a, a new, uh, you know, uh, sort of angle to that mainstream that was kind of needed, you know, a little bit more musicianship and all that stuff. So, but they needed that, the feeling good, the cover, you know, to, to move them to Virgin Radio and then get on that. There's so much that goes behind, behind the scenes that's involved in bands' failures and successes that, you know, it's, it's sort of, there's, you know, this is the kind of more, slightly more interesting side of it. It wasn't 99 anymore. Since like 98, 99, things had peaked and now they were tragically falling off the side of a cliff. And that we literally came at the most, you know, uh, tumultuous time of technological, uh, you know, uh, transformation. And as a result, that, you know, that hit us hard. It did. So if we were just, if we were just before, like a 99 sort of time, uh, and released the album sort of 99, 2000, we might have just bolted through before it really hit hard. But obviously it wasn't. And it's C'est la vie. Uh, or if we'd come out a little bit later, like 2005, six, then there was a different format that was now appearing in place, which could then be used to, but it, it is what it is, right? So, and I, I don't really care because I, 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 I'm happy with what we achieved. We achieved way more than we ever set out to. And that's the key, you know? Yeah. Success is a relative thing, isn't it? You know? It certainly isn't. The goalposts are always changing. Chino Moreno once called you the best band in the world. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, Chino, is so, he was so nice. They asked us to support him and we support him. I think it was in um, Edinburgh. And he just, you know, he just pulled me, when he saw me, he, he was he was really cool. He was very friendly. Like he was, he just pulled me to the side and he was like, I just wanted to say, man, that is, just wanted to congratulate you on an amazing piece of work. And, and the funny thing is I was in such a funny headspace. And you know what Brits are like? We're a lot less, you know, we're, culturally there's a difference there. And, you know, it's, there's this culture of banter and you never take anything too seriously. Yeah. So I was just kind of like just joking around and laughing it off when he was like telling me how he, he wanted to congratulate me on a great piece of work. But I, but I was hugely honored by that because, you know, White Pony, what a great album, you know. And you can tell Chino always was very forward thinking within metal. He didn't want to just stay in and just copy everybody else. He always wanted to do something interesting with it. And you can tell that he was listening to music from all sorts of genres and whatever you know that ultimately is what really tests stands the test of time was there some intelligence behind this or not you know and um all the bands that really because it would have been better in terms of commercial success to always just copy another band so for example some somebody will do really well like 10 million and then kids will go they'll be like oh i want to be as good as that band and then record company will find them and go right you just have to do exactly what they kind of did <laughs> and we'll slot you in just behind them and there's so much money to be made so boom it all coalesces around they get they can even get songwriters in for you all sorts of things that wasn't us this was 100 percent organic it was cottage industry really kind of stuff um but then you can't really compete against the 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 the, the juggernauts you know we were like a, a mum and pop cafe trying to compete against the McDonald's of the world, right? <laughs> That's, we were like a little boutique hotel going up against the, you know, the, the Hilton chain or whatever. So it's, that is what it is. You know? There was definitely nothing like it at the time, but there must have been something that... Was there an album you were listening to around the time when you, when you first started coming up with Delusions of Grandeur that, that was inspiring you and you thought, I, I want to sound like this, I want to be like this? 
not not just one. I mean, there's obviously lots, but you do get influenced by what you're listening to at the time. I mean, that's something that you can even hear in, like, say, for Beatles. You know, like you can hear what they were listening to at the time because they sort of go in a certain direction. You know, you could hear when they started listening to Dylan, or you know, the, the start, there's literally riffs that are straight off Chuck Berry some of the time. You know, what, what's interesting is that you find yourself the more music you listen to right over the the years the more you end up finding what is really you <laughs> because all of those other influences start to sort of fade away and then what gets revealed is what is really and so for example you know when people like uh, it's so damn easy or whatever i don't really know who does that sound like i mean us really i mean i don't yeah i, I find it hard to you know people always ask me if they don't know my vitriol and they say, oh, who's your favourite band? And they're like, oh, who does it sound like? It's really hard. It's really hard to, to compare. And also, Secret Sessions and Fine Lines are very different. The, the, the songs yeah. on Secret Sessions are very different to the sound you had back in, in 2002. So this is the funny one, because people who don't have the emotional connection to Fine Lines, because anyone who, it's like Demoitis, whatever you hear first and, and you fall in love with, yeah. and nothing else can ever really match that. Um, and that's to be understood, really. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, but people who come at it from a fresh start often prefer some of the more recent stuff. So that's very, like some people, their favorite song is London City Lights. You know, other people, their favorite song will be, uh, you know, uh, Days or something. You know, th literally, it's, it's all over the place. But with fine lines, you know, people tend to focus on the big ones, like always, of course, right? Um, well, for me, Fine Lines is an album. It's and I very rarely listen to a track from Fine Lines, whereas yeah. I will listen to a track from Secret Sessions. Yeah, well, the Secret Sessions was a collection of songs, not yeah. an album, and that was what we made very clear. I mean, I guess people got very confused by it, but this is this is what you realise is that, you know, the, the the simpler the message, the easier it is for people to understand, and that simple is something that you know maybe we need to learn how to do better. <laughs> because it certainly confuses a lot of people and this whole idea that it was a second album and all that stuff like everything you know it was it was it was all a bit too much and it, it was just getting a little bit i think we probably we just viewed it as something that we were doing for the fans and off the public radar you know we were doing it for the people that have written to us for years so that's why we um you know kept them updated about every little thing that was going on whether it's like not getting an ap2 agreement license yet or whatever do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um, but then that was all just used again. You know, there's always there's one thing you learn, Chris, is that you know, if even if you do succeed and you try and help so many people along the way. For example, when I first got the cover of Enemy or whatever that thing, I, I named like 20 bands. I had literally wrote them down going to the interview, going, "You have to try and help these people." So right. I wrote, I wrote down a whole bunch of names, and I said, "They said, oh, are you from a scene?" And I went, "Um, I don't know if it's a scene, but you know, we hang out with so many great bands like in London." And these are the bad. And I name checked a whole bunch of them, yeah. and about twelve of them made the cut in, you know, into the into because it's the new musical express after all, right? So so it's like give give everybody else a leg up, you know. Um, but despite all of that, you learn that there are some people who will just really resent the fact that you succeeded, and because we got so many compliments from from people we viewed as heroes, right? Uh, whether it's like the you know death tones like you mentioned or garbage butch big and shirley's what they said and so many others what coldplay said news said you got all of those people saying good things and then you got people just behind you snapping at your heels basically and and you realize this is psychology at play this is people's egos and stuff more than anything objective to do with 
the music. So there were certain there's there's a couple of bands out there there were members of those bands or whatever that always resented us and that that whole palaver with the you know it's pledge music doesn't even exist anymore because it's a flawed system because it you, you it's not ordering a burger from mcdonald's it's a creative enterprise you don't know yeah. when it's going to get done and the problem with this consumer culture that everybody's got into is that they think they're ordering a fucking burger they're not you're not you know and, and at the end of the day you're not paying much for it you know for the compared to the amount of work i was like for fuck's sakes if these people are going to complain for just putting 12 quid in take <laughs> your 12 quid back please <laughs> Take, if that shuts you up from just putting so much negativity and toxicity into the whole thing. Uh, are you writing still? Yeah. In fact, we just... So, yeah, it's taken a long time to get Ravi to uh, commit to putting some time into this project. Since the pandemic, he sort of went into making his own home studio and he basically thought that now he just likes being there and that's it. <laughs> so everything has to be remote. I mean, but to me, that's not how bands work. But mm -hmm. so and, and we, we found um, we found this uh, this hard drive had, had busted. I mean, th this kind of shit happens to us all the time that just constantly trying to destroy us basically um it's like the it's like we w will put adversity in front of you so you have to overcome but anyway it's um we i managed to salvage the material on that hard drive and one of the best songs i ever well in my opinion one of the melodically one of the best songs i ever wrote is on there so i do want to get that you know but i'm not going to make any promises of any new material whatsoever because <laughs> i've learned my lesson now uh, <laughs> under promise <laughs> and perhaps over deliver. Super excited to have you headlining Scala in November. Are there tickets left? Uh, yeah, so our, our allocation has 14 tickets left. So, <laughs> <laughs> so jump on that. <laughs> yeah so there's um and yeah but i think dice is a few more that's the um scala themselves L last time we played scala it was rammed actually they they sold it to club capacity so some people couldn't see uh you know because when you're when it's the ba band playing on the stage you have they have because of the viewing you can sell less tickets right capacity is slightly different but when it's a club you can sell it to full fire you know fire capacity and they did sell it to fire capacity so it was boiling in there and it was rammed and nobody could like a lot of people couldn't even see but it was you know but added to the vibe i guess but so it's going to be a great gig um you know we've done on our side it's almost gone there's like 14 left and so it's only been on sale for a very short so it's eight months away so it's very likely to sell out yes yeah i can't wait and and you know when we saw you um when i saw you rather uh, at the apollo a few weeks back one thing that was noticeable, uh, you know, it was a hundred reasons gig, and I and love hundred reasons. Not, nothing against them, but the amount of people that were wearing my vitriol t-shirts. So there was there was a good few people there to see oh, you. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, 
I know yeah. we so yet again we don't think about the you know it was just about jumping on a, uh, uh, you know with our friends you know they're, they're our mates and stuff and they're from similar time period and, and all that oh yeah so they, they, I think that show had been on sale since um 2021 if I remember right and they were they were they were going out on the tour with it you know and and the idea came up and I went you know what fuck it why not I mean it's it's first on which is it's a pain in terms of you don't have your own sound and lights and all that kind of stuff, which is a big part of the experience. But obviously at the Scala, the good news is that, you know, we will have our own sound and lights. And, you know, the lights have been a big part of our show, especially, you know, around 2002, we're spending a lot of time getting those lights right, you know, programming them. And, oh man, that was, that was an interesting one because like, you know, I, I, problem with me is that I'm, you know, I, I was, wasn't willing to, um, you know, fire people that, didn't make the grade i would just try and make them into the person that they that we needed you know right so <laughs> i mean i probably shouldn't say it like that I, he probably won't even listen to this but you know it, it was it, it, a lot of people who do light, lighting um design they actually come in from a theater sort of perspective so when when we basically come in and we've basically inverted that and it's all it's it's silhouette and atmosphere and drama it's all about it's a completely different thing it's very most lighting engineers are like what the hell it's just like you have to throw the entire rule book away and you have to start again a little bit and to me it seems obvious and to a lot of our fans who are used to what what you know when the shows go to the way they do like th that makes sense but people who haven't seen that and not from that world it's a whole different language i'm speaking yeah. greek to them so it's tough um, but you know, we still managed to get that kind of happening at the, you know, at our this last one that you came to, last tour. We kind of got it there slowly but surely. And but you know, for this it should be great. But it was it was a you know, it was kind of funny that the lighting w was always a contentious issue, not just with the lighting guy, with various members of the you know the record company, the management, whatever. You know, but we can't really see you and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, that's not the important bit. The important bit is having. Uh, like the, the emotional impact of the song to be as dramatic as possible that was the whole idea yeah. and finally and, and, but then when we got it right then everybody got it I, look I really appreciate your time Sam um, thank you for taking the time out of your day brilliant cool. thanks for that Chris have a good rest of your day It was a great interview. Yeah, it was. It was great. Yeah. And actually, there's probably about a third more stuff, good stuff, which I don't know what I'll do with. But I think that Som is probably one of the easiest people I've ever interviewed or spoken to because I, th I don't think I asked him half the questions I planned to ask him because he's just happy to, to talk and take a different angle. And oh, we'll discuss that now and we'll go on here. And like, you just got to feed him every 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 five minutes feed him with a with a comment and then he'll get going again it's brilliant yeah it was uh it was it was great fun great fun yeah nice and it's an interesting little look at um like early noughties music yeah i thought that as well some of the some of the bands he names are from that period and i was thinking yeah they, you know they were all the yeah. all the kind of alternative rock bands that were coming up and at the yeah. drive-in
At the drive-in, yeah. Love it, love it. Yeah, and Muse, because I, I haven't looked into it, but, you know, he talks quite a lot about Muse. And I guess at the time my vitriol were coming up in 2001, Muse was still very alternative then, weren't they? Yeah. It was kind of pre-Plugin yeah. Baby. Or, or maybe maybe Plugin Baby was the was one of the ones that kind of got more of the mainstream light shone on it, was it? I'm not sure. It was certainly that album was, was picking up. At the yeah. time, I just remembered Muse being everywhere around 2001. Yeah, they were doing well, weren't they? Oh, also Coldplay, um, yeah. which were a very different band. We've got, to, I think, it's got to be put into perspective for people that weren't around, if for younger listeners that weren't kind of our age in two thousand and one. Yeah, I'd say Coldplay were a very different band back then. They used to be a rock band. In the yeah, old days. they were just not the same. I mean, even if you saw Chris Martin back then, he didn't even look like the same person. <laughs> like, no, God, no, no. Yeah, they were they were very different, very different. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, it was interesting to hear all those names, and uh, you know, he was obviously he, he saw the music of two thousand and one from a very different, yeah, very different perspective to to where we saw it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, what a dream as well to uh, to be able to interview, yeah, my favorite it's, artist. It's like me interviewing Prince, isn't it? It's slightly different to you. <laughs> Interviewing Prince. I, can, I just need to get a Ouija board. Exactly. Yeah. We can give it a shot if you like. <laughs> that would be an interesting, uh, or maybe it wouldn't be actually, it would be bloody awful episode. Yeah, Clear day, I think. Well, you know, I, I say end on a high. You know, we got to we got to interview some. I mean, wouldn't it have been awful if I waited all, all these years of my life to, to interview Sam Wardner and he just didn't want to talk? And it was. Have you ever seen that interview with uh, Sigur Ross on. Um, I think it's on an American radio station. No. no. Oh, I mean, if, if, you you haven't really got to search for it. Just just put it into YouTube. Sigur Ross interview. You'll find it. Like it's the first one. Um, and they they just don't want to talk. They give one word answers to everything, and it's like it's painful. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I get from their perspective, they are tired of doing interviews. <laughs> like they have probably been told by by their manager that you've got to you've got to get up and do this thing and they're like oh yeah but we've got to be on stage and whatever how many hours and we're tired and they don't want to be there but they've kind of got to do it and but you know <laughs> the poor guy who's interviewing them it's his job for christ's sake like i know you gotta be it fair would been, it would have been great if they they, they answered the questions in their cigaros language <laughs> i think and they call that i think they call it icelandic <laughs> no 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 that their their music is uh, I Do don't these... think it's in Icelandic. Oh, it's, really? It's actually in their own language that they've made up. Oh, okay. All right. I take it back. Sigaross language. Sigaross language. Okay. Yeah, it is. Honestly, it's like Pixies. Like... God, I haven't listened to Sigaross in years. Hopelandic. That's what they call. Oh, yeah. Hopelandic. That's what they. That's what they call it. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that at all. I just always assumed it was Icelandic. Icelandic's pretty pretty bonkers language as well. Yep. You um, learn something new every day, don't you? I I I didn't expect some to sound like that i i was expecting him to sound more like dylan from the magic roundabout <laughs> he's a stoned rabbit <laughs> you thought he was gonna sound like a stoned rabbit yeah that's that not... just that's just the image i had in my mind really <laughs> and then I he d- comes out really really articulate and and you know i mean obviously he would be articulate you know he's a he's a clever guy but like i just in my mind you know you, you see someone and you, you get these preconceptions about what they sound like what they talk like and oh, interesting you like. yeah no so I, I guess i've seen early interviews from when you know 2001 2002 so 
I kind of had had an idea already, but um, yeah, I would. I, <laughs> I don't think he gives off the Stone Rabbit vibe. They're not like a stoner band. They're quite. They're quite a quite a thinky band, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they are. I think it's you're reading too much into it, dude. <laughs> okay, just, all right. It's just in my mind. I saw pictures of him, and I thought, yeah, he's he's going to sound like Dylan. Well, so. maybe. I mean, maybe that's a compliment. We'll let we'll let him decide. Maybe. I hope it is. Uh, oh look, if you want to appear on an episode of a super fan cast, because you are a super fan of somebody, or if you're a famous musician and you want us to interview you, get in touch via the contact form on superfannews.net um, or you can reach us at superfancast@outlook.com. you can follow us on twitter or on facebook i've really not been very active on twitter lately i need to i need to get back to it and that's about it from me i can't add anything more than that it's pretty good you've done a, you've done a sterling job and i'm going to invite you back for the next episode oh thank you you're welcome uh, and until then uh, thanks for listening stay safe Keep rocking, and we'll see you next time. Toodaloo.